scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be with you all today, to worship with you all, and bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church in Warsaw, Indiana. John 14, just three verses this morning. We'll begin at verse 12 and read through 14. This is God's word, John 14, 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The word of God. Let's open in a word of prayer this morning. Oh God, this is a very holy place to be in your church, gather with your people, and seated now before your word. We can, we can hardly comprehend the privilege that we have, the, the opportunity that it lies before us at this moment now that we are sitting before literally the word of God, that you through your spirit in a way that we cannot understand through the preaching of your word, that you speak to the hearts of people in a divine way. You open hearts. You make hearts that are dead and lifeless to live. You take cold hearts and you warm them. You take hard hearts and you soften them. You take hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. You take disobedience and re-energize obedience. You take lethargy and laziness and spark renewal and revival. Your word is powerful. It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Come in this hour and discern our hearts. Oh God, we need you. We need you. We are so sinful, every one of us. We are so unbelievably godless in so many ways in our lives. It's amazing how, how selfish and self-centered we are. Would you come this day? Would you come in this hour and revive us, God? Give us a fresh perspective. May we walk out of here with new faith and new hope. And may this text that we have in front of us just absolutely energize us and, and change us and make us long for you in a way that we have not in for, for some of us perhaps for months, if not years. We believe that you can do this, oh God. If we don't believe that, then we don't even understand the first thing about this text. Would you come and help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, welcome to Heritage Baptist Church. If you are joining us for the first time, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing. In fact, we're getting to the close of a series that we started a number of weeks ago called Twisted, some of the most popular yet misused verses in Scripture. And the point of this series uh, is not to take everyone's sort of favorite life verse and trash it. What we're trying to do, essentially, is take these popular verses that, yes, some people have turned into their life verse or their favorite verses and understand them in a way that is more clear or more biblical. I mean, we live in a culture and in a society and in a time where Scripture is grossly misunderstood. Not only that, but it's poorly taught. It's just so poorly taught in so many places. And today we come to another misused text in the Bible where Jesus really utters some amazing words. He says, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. It's pretty potent, isn't it? And what we want to ask this morning is the question, how has this text been misused? And what does it really mean? How can we understand it properly? So... I don't want to say any more. I want to just jump right into John chapter 14. Let me just begin by saying something about the context here. In the opening verses of this chapter, Jesus is breaking the news to his disciples, really hard news, difficult news, that he is leaving them. In fact, it'll be less than 24 hours, and Jesus will have been brutalized and beaten almost beyond recognition. And he will have suffered for the sins of the world as he is executed on the cross. We're less than 24 hours from that moment right now when Jesus is addressing his disciples in this passage. And that news is something that's virtually impossible for these guys to hear or comprehend. They cannot wrap their minds around that. They are broken. They are sorrowful. It is a painful moment. The, the anxiety in the room must have been palpable. The, the sorrow, the tears, the, just the anxious hearts of these men. And so they begin to ask Jesus a series of questions. The first comes from Thomas and then Peter. And their main concern is somewhat selfish. It seems to be, how are we going to cope with life after you're gone? And they begin to ask Jesus these questions. And what Jesus does here amazes me. I mean, think about it. If anyone needs comfort, it's Jesus, right? I mean, the disciples are going to go on living. Jesus is about to be brutalized and incur the very wrath of his father, the very wrath of God upon him in less than 24 hours. And here he is doing the comforting of these disciples. He is so selfless. Our Savior is so selfless. And what he does in short is he encourages them with his words. In verse 18, he actually says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. He wants to encourage them to this. And Jesus makes clear to them that his provision centers on his continuing ministry to them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice verse 12, that these words and promises are for all who believe. Do you see that language? For all who believe. So this promise is not made to the apostles alone, but really to all who follow Jesus Christ. And that's an important point because no one is excluded here if you are a Christian in what we're about to read. It's not like this little pericope, this little passage is just for these disciples. It's for us this morning, and we are to hear this by faith, and we are to receive it. This promise is for us. No one is excluded here. And in these verses, Jesus tells us three things specifically. First, those who believe in him, verse 12, will carry on his work. 
Look again at verse 12. The second thing we see is that Jesus says that we will do, and here's one of these amazing statements, we will do even greater works than he has done, than he did, verse 12. And then the third thing we see is as a means to that end, we have access to Jesus in prayer so that everything we need, we can ask for it and receive it. That's kind of the the essence of what Jesus is teaching in these verses. Now, of course, these words have been taken out of context and grossly misapplied in the church. And at one level, that's understandable because it's compelling to grab hold of such sweeping promises, right? I mean, we're all tempted in some way to just grab a promise like this in scripture and run wild with it. I mean, when, when you read words like, you will do greater works than me, isn't there something in your flesh that kind of says, yeah, I like that. I want to hear that. Give me, give me some more of that. And then, and then we read something like, I will, do, I will do whatever, I mean, whatever you ask in my name. I mean, I like that. So there's something about us that kind of obviously gravitates to words like this. And that's what people do. They grab something like this, they run wild with it, and then they end up abusing it and making improper application. And I would say that there are two primary errors that people make when they interpret this text. And in my limited perspective. And the first, I would say, is a sincere but misguided approach that sees these words of Jesus as an unconditional promise, an unconditional promise. In other words, people come to this passage and they say, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will do it. And they say, anything means anything, right? So, I I mean, if anything, what what does it mean? It means anything. So I'm going to take Jesus' words at face value and I'm going to do exactly that. Now, I think people are obviously very sincere when they do this. I think they mean well. Um, but they're misguided nonetheless. Such a reading fails to see any conditions placed on this text. And so people just read it as, as a blanket promise. And the result is that they pray all kinds of prayers that are either not glorifying to God or end up being largely self-centered. And certainly we've all been guilty of selfish praying, haven't we? I mean, I know I have. I have prayed selfish prayers, self-centered prayers. But we know intuitively that we don't automatically get whatever we ask whenever we ask it. I mean, don't we just know that by experience? In fact, I actually, I praise God for this because the things I pray for are not always wise or in my best interest, even though I think that it is. I praise God that my folly does not override the wisdom of God. I praise God that my unsanctified prayers do not override his holiness. I mean, I'm, pr- I'm thankful that God doesn't say, Jonathan just prayed a really foolish prayer, but because I said this in John 14, I'm going to have to answer it. <laughs> Aren't you glad he doesn't do that with us? So that's the first way that this text is misused. Now, the second is far more serious and I would say sinister. And I use that language intentionally. Some people, in fact, whole denominations, the word of faith movement, and others like that approach these words of Jesus in, I would say, in a corrupt way. Let me explain. We see this in prosperity preachers who run wild with these words and they argue that we can have anything as long as we claim it in Jesus' name. 
Now, just a word about the Word of Faith movement for those who may not be familiar. Word Faith Theology developed in the second half of the 20th century in mainly Pentecostal churches, and its beginnings come from an, from an evangelical pastor, of all things, named E.W. Kenyon. He died in 1948. And he preached that God would award financial and other gifts if the faithful would simply ask. Kenyon coined the phrase, what I confess, I possess. People practice this theology, and so the question is, what does it look like in real life? Well, let me quote for you a couple of well-known and popular Word of Faith preachers today. Joyce Meyer, in her message, Mind, Mouth, Moods, and Attitudes, says the following, quote, We need to be speaking right things over our lives and futures if we expect to have good things happen. Because what you say today is probably what you'll end up having tomorrow. Did you hear that? What you say is what you will have. Paul Crouch said on a recent TBN broadcast, speak that thing, decree that thing, and it shall come to pass. Whatever is in your life that you're decreeing right now, you have to speak it, say it, and decree it, and God will bring it to pass. It gets worse. How about Marilyn Hickey? In her talk, What to Do in a Crisis, she says the following, what do you need? You say, I need money. Okay, then start creating it. Start speaking it into being. Say to your billfold, say, you big, thick billfold full of money. <laughs> say to your checkbook, say, you checkbook, you've never been so prosperous since I owned you. You're just jammed full of money. Speak to your foot, your neck, your back, whatever. And once you've spoken it, believe that you've received it and don't go back on it. Speak to your circumstances and speak faith to them and God will create what you're speaking. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just paganism. There's just no other way around it. Pure, unadulterated materialism in the name of Christian theology. And here's the thing, we laugh at how ludicrous some of this stuff is. I mean, you can't make it up. It's so ridiculous. You're listening to these guys going, going on TV and going crazy. You decree that thing in Jesus' name, and you're, you're thinking, this is crazy. Crazy what some of these guys are saying. But it's tragic, and it has tragic consequences. Let me illustrate. In 1980, a book was published by Larry Parker entitled, We Let Our Son Die. It tells the tragic story of how Larry and his wife, after being influenced by Word of Faith teachers, withheld insulin from their son, Wesley. Predictably, Wesley went into a diabetic coma. Immediately, the Parkers were encouraged by Word of Faith teachers not to make, quote, a negative admission, but to, quote, positively confess Wesley's healing. So rather than giving Wesley medication, they confessed healing over Wesley for several more hours until he died. Even after Wesley's death, the Parkers, totally unshaken from this theology, conducted a resurrection service instead of a funeral service. In fact, for more than a year following their son's death, they refused to abandon the, quote, revelation knowledge that they had received through, quote, word, faith, movement. Eventually, they were tried and convicted of manslaughter and child abuse, and they should have been. 
Because that's sick. That's absolutely sick. Well, sadly, many other stories could be told. But here's the point. The prosperity gospel that word of faith teachers build so much of their erroneous theology on are false interpretations of verses like the one in front of us. But here's the question. Is, is prosperity and gain really what Jesus has in mind here? I mean, is that even, is that even an option? Maybe you're saying, well, anything is anything. It's, couldn't that also be an option? Well, here's the thing. James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think that opens a window of understanding to us. So that's the way this text is abused. Now the question is this, if that's how it's abused, what did Jesus mean when he spoke these words to his disciples? Perhaps we're, I mean, we as in Heritage Baptists, perhaps we're stripping this verse of the promise Jesus intended. Are we twisting the verse ourselves so that the words whatever and anything become essentially meaningless? I would hope not. In fact, I, I would say I don't think so in any way. In fact, I would argue that when we understand this verse rightly, the words anything and whatever actually carry with them real power. Not some pseudo fake power, but real power as Jesus intended them to carry. And there are three things that we need to see about this passage if we're going to understand it properly. Okay, first, there's a condition to the promise. Second, there's a purpose to the promise or for the promise. And finally, there's a power in the promise, okay? The condition of the promise. Uh, this promise of Jesus carries with it a condition. It's right there in the text. Look at verse 13. In fact, it's hard to miss because Jesus actually says it twice in verse 13 and 14. Let's read it again, verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What's the condition? In my name. He says it two times, in my name. Now, note carefully what Jesus said. Not that all our prayers would be granted, but that prayers made in his name would be granted. The test of any prayer is this. Can I make this prayer in the name of Jesus? I mean, we can all think of all kinds of prayers that do not glorify God. If, if God answered them, certain prayers that we prayed, if God answered them, he would either be discredited or totally dishonored. I mean, for example, let me just throw some examples out. To pray something like, God, please make me more important than yourself. Or something like, God, please wipe this ethnic group off the face of the earth. I can't stand those people. Or... Prayers like, God, make adultery a godly thing so that I can do it. Or, God, please take this competitor of mine and put him out of business. So when we pray, we must ask questions like, can we honestly make this prayer in the name of Jesus? Now, to be fair, prosperity preachers are big. They're big on the name of Jesus. After all, I mean, you listen enough to these guys and the mantra is, I declare it in the name of Jesus, right? The name of Jesus. So they're big on the name of Jesus. It was not that they fail to understand the significance of praying in Jesus' name, but listen, it's that they abuse his name. 
which is very serious. Praying in Jesus' name has to mean something more than simply slapping his name at the end of a selfish or even, God forbid, sinful prayer. True prayers that are offered in Christ's name are not selfish. They are for the good of God's kingdom. They proceed from a heart of faith and they are in accordance with his will. A prayer in Christ's name is a prayer that is in harmony with Christ and all that he has revealed about himself. In that sense, it's not difficult to understand why such a prayer is always answered. I mean, think about it. When we pray this way, our hearts are united to Christ and we are to pray in the name of Jesus and our hearts are one with him. So it's, it's clear that he would answer that prayer when our heart is so joined and so united to the heart and the desires of Christ himself. So we're to pray in Jesus' name. And besides, what other name could we invoke? I mean, to pray in any other name or to simply pray in no name is to pray a prayer that God will not hear. This pressure is on um, those who are chaplains in our military told that they must pray a unifaith prayer. They are not to offer that prayer in Jesus' name. We just don't have that privilege. We don't have that prerogative. We don't have that right to just pray a unifaith prayer in whatever name that we feel like praying it in. We can't, we don't have, Jesus says we are to pray in his name. And when we do that, what are we, what are we actually doing? Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was a pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia. Uh, he says this, he says, to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to seek his endorsement of our request and to bring it into consideration that what we ask must be consistent with his nature and purposes as our savior. I like that language. It's to seek his endorsement. When you pray, are you able to seek the very endorsement of God upon your prayer? Think about what you prayed about this week. Think about some of the things that you were, you've been praying about as a family or in your own private time. Could you seek the endorsement of Jesus on that prayer? When we pray, I think a good question to ask is, what would Jesus be praying for at this moment? Now, having said that, what Jesus wants us to see is that when we pray in his name, things that are consistent with his name and purposes, we should be praying with great confidence, knowing that he will answer those prayers. So this is an incredible promise. I've been talking about the negative side of this for the first part of this sermon. We're gonna get into the positive side, okay? Because this is meant to encourage us. It's meant to drive us not from prayer, but to prayer. This is, a, this, is, this is an encouragement, a motivation for prayer. The name of Christ is so powerful. It, over and over again in scripture, we read this, in my name, in Jesus' name, or in his name. Okay? It's, it's, unfortunately, prosperity preachers have run wild with it in a wrong direction. But there is something to the name of Jesus Christ doctrinally and theologically. Scholars call it name Christology. Jesus is identifying and establishing his deity through his name and signs and wonders that are performed in his name. It's all over scripture. Let me give you some examples. So we see that devils were powerless because of his name, Luke 10, 17. Or the demons were cast out in his name, Mark 16. Healing occurred in his name, Acts 3, 6. Acts 3, 16. Acts 4, 10. 
Salvation comes in his name, Acts 4.12, Romans 10.13. And we are to baptize in his name, Matthew 28.19. We are justified in his name, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And everything we do and say is to be done in his name, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. So in summary, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're doing several things. The first thing that we're doing is we're admitting the bankruptcy of our own name. I mean, it's like a bride that comes from abject poverty marrying a wealthy husband. And when she takes on the name of her husband, she takes on all that that name entails. She no longer acts in her name, but in his. She does not have any wealth of her own to boast in. And neither do we, we take on Christ's name. When we pray in his name, secondly, we're identifying with a person of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're saying that Jesus, we, we, I mean, he's literally giving us his name. And when we use that name, we're confessing that we are his and he is ours, that we're united to him. Third, when we pray in his name, we're praying in his authority. To pray in his name is to ask for something by his authority and in accordance with his will and in accordance with his word. Four, when we pray in his name, we are submitting to his will. Think about it. When Jesus was on the earth, he submitted to the Father. And like Jesus, we are to submit to him. Our authority rests with our submission to him. And so to ask him something in his name is to ask something according to his nature. And his nature is one of submission. Prayers that are contrary to the word of God will not be answered. I mean, obviously, we're to submit our hearts and concerns to the will of God. Five, when we pray in his name, we are representing him and all of his interest on the earth. Think about this like an ambassador. We are ambassadors for Christ. Have you thought about how your prayers represent Jesus? We, we represent Christ and his name and his kingdom and his glory on the earth. And when we pray, we are laboring by faith for the glory of his name on the earth. We are praying on behalf of God and his interest. What a privilege that I get to be a part of the extension of God's kingdom through my prayers, to pray on behalf of his kingdom. And number six, when we, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying expectingly. We, are, we, we should do that with anticipation and expectation, believing that as we are placing premium value on God and on his name, that he will do exactly what he says in this text and he will answer us. So we should pray with expectancy. So we've seen the condition placed on the promise, we're to pray in his name. But secondly, notice this, notice the purpose of the promise. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you wonder why your prayers are not being answered in the way that you have prayed. Or you don't see anything at all. And you just struggle. Maybe it's something you've been praying for for a long time. And you think about something right now in your life that you've been praying for consistently and you just, you're just like, man, why does God not answer that? I'm just not getting any help. It doesn't seem to be coming, and we struggle with this. And I would say that often the reason why prayer does not seem to work is that we've under, misunderstood something about the purpose of prayer. What does Jesus say about it? Look carefully at the text. You probably already noticed the word in verse 13. It's the word glorified. So we're glorified. And I will do whatever you ask in my name in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
Now, this isn't so much of a condition as it is a purpose. It's a purpose for our prayer. What is the overarching purpose of our prayers? It is so that the Father would be glorified. Prayer is not for the gratifying of natural desires. I mean, we just have this bent, this natural bent to constantly be praying because we want something, we need something, we are going after something. But how often are our prayers not oriented that way, but oriented toward God and his glory? How often are we on our knees pleading with God, oh God, come and do this thing for your glory, for your name's sake, for your fame, for the praise of your name. Think about Ephesians chapter one, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The theme all the way throughout scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation is the glory of God in all things. I mean, that's the draw, that's the, that's the whole point of scripture. Even the death of Jesus, our salvation, everything that we have and possess that is good from God, it's all for his glory. So it makes sense that our prayers should be absolutely wrapped up around his glory. Listen, we miss something. We wonder why our prayers are not being answered, but here's the question. How often are our prayers being driven and motivated by the very glory of God? And if they would become more motivated by that principle, don't you think there would be an increase in the answer to those prayers? This is what Jesus says. It's clear. This is a purpose in the text. It's a great purpose of prayer. The major challenge of prayer is to become a people dominated not by natural desires, but by spiritual desires. I think the key to praying with power is to be the kind of person that does not use God for our ends but is devoted to being used for his ends and his purposes. We were made to be oriented around God and his glory. So prayer, I think really what it is, is it's a discipline that constantly reorients us and recenters our lives on God and his purposes. I mean, that's one of the disciplines that prayer produces. So the We've seen that this is, the, this is the priority and the purpose of our prayers. We've seen the condition to our praying in verse 13. And finally, I want to spend the rest of our time on what I would say is the most encouraging aspect of this text, which is the power of the promise, the power of the promise. As I said earlier, this text is meant to drive us to prayer. And I, I've been praying for you guys this week. I've been praying for myself. I've been praying for this text to not just be another sermon in the Twisted series. Okay, now we've understood how the text is misused. Praise God, we got a clear understanding. But, but something would happen in your heart. I mean, I'm asking the Spirit of God, even now in this moment, to be opening up some of your hearts, to be refreshing you, to be giving you faith this morning to believe that prayer really does matter. And that your laziness in prayer, that your struggle in prayer is not something you're going to deal with for the rest of your life, but that God may, God may just put his hand on a few of you this morning and set you apart for some intensified praying in the years to come. He may begin a work in your life and in your heart where you begin to pray in a way that you've never prayed before. And I hope that happens. I, my desire is for that to happen. We need that. We need God to shake us out of this lethargy. And I believe that he wants to do Is that not a prayer that glorifies him? We're talking about prayers that glorify him. 
That we, would, that we would pray more. Isn't that a prayer that glorifies him? That we would pray more prayers that are centered on his glory. That he would set us free from our flesh and from ourselves and from our own struggle. That he would, he would move us out of the selfishness of the, the orbit of our own self and he would reorbit us around him and his glory. And I believe that God is willing to do that. So pray with me as we tackle this last section here that God would work in your own heart. It's so motivating. Jesus says, ask anything. He says, whatever you ask, I will do it. That's a powerful promise. The question is, are we taking advantage of this promise? And I'm convinced that as a church, we do not have a sufficient appreciation or understanding of prayer. And I put the bulk of that responsibility on us as pastors. To consider the fact that we have direct access to God in the new covenant is overwhelming. To consider the fact that in the old covenant, the men and women of the old covenant would have dreamed for such access to God. But we have it. The question is, are we taking advantage of it? To be allowed to speak with the living God is beyond comprehension. And then to realize that we are so negligent in communing with him is heartbreaking. The truth is we struggle with prayer. Prayer is hard work. I, as your pastor, struggle with prayer every day. I battle with it. It is a battle of my flesh to get up in the morning and try to seek God. My heart doesn't feel like it. My flesh does not want it. The bed is calling my name. The snooze button is reminding me that it promises me good things. But it doesn't. God is waiting in my room upstairs in my house or in my office for me if I will come and commune with him. And when I do, and when I step out and I, and I move in that direction and God comes and he blesses that prayer time, you stand there and you say, I am a fool for not doing this every day. I am an absolute fool. And yet that battle goes on every day in my heart, every single day. I never feel like I have victory in this issue of prayer. So don't sit there in your seat thinking, well, my pastor's got it taken care of. He does not. He's a very broken man, fallen, struggling every single day. But here's the thing, I will never give up. Every day, we will keep going. We will keep trying. We will keep pressing in so that God will help us. That's, just, that's what we need, just that resolve, the discipline, consistency to just show up. No matter what, no matter how we feel, just to show up. Prayer is hard work. The Puritans used to gather for prayer and for preaching. They would preach for an hour and pray for an hour. They would preach for two hours and they would pray for two hours. And so while we have a right emphasis on the preaching of God's word, where is the equally right emphasis on the praying of God's people? We have nothing but the word of God in prayer. That's what Acts 6 says we are to be devoting ourselves to, to the word of God in prayer. I mean, that is your pastor's primary responsibility. Your pastor, if he is running around everywhere, doing everything all the time, he is not devoting himself to the word and to prayer as Acts 6 has called us, then he is not a man of power. If he's not a man of power, he can't lead the church wisely. If the church is not being led wisely, the church begins to struggle. 
and your life is affected. We have got to give ourselves, and in principle, all of us, to the word in prayer. And this is our primary calling. We have nothing but this. So why then is it that we spend hours every week, hopefully devoted to the word, but only minutes a week devoted to the ministry of prayer? Listen, every mighty movement of God in history has been rooted in a dynamic of powerful prayer. And I have to confess to my own shame that I fear that this is not what we are known for as a church. We are known for our preaching and teaching. We are known for our love and hospitality or even our missional involvement in the world. But we are not known, I fear, for our praying and our fasting. And in this, we are in profound danger of missing the whole point of our life together. God wills for us to be a praying people. And here's the thing, God will bring about remarkable things in our church and in this world in direct correlation to the prayer of this body. Listen, our prayers affect the way God acts in the world. Prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. And that may make some of you uncomfortable, but it's no less true. If we're nervous about that statement, then we have a defective understanding of God's providence. And here's why. The fact that God is in control of all things does not somehow make prayer meaningless. God is not nullifying the power of prayer because he's sovereign over all things. There is a harmony, there is a unity, there's a compatibility between our praying and God's acting in such a way that as we pray, God acts, which should be giving us hope and faith that prayer makes a difference. Prayer matters. God has ordained prayer as a means by which we can and must participate in his plan. God will use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. He has chosen to make prayer a powerful means by which we engage with the creator of the universe and shape the course of human history. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. The only question is, are we doing that? Are we doing that or have we approached prayer in a way that says God will do whatever God's going to do whether I pray or not? I mean, maybe you wouldn't say it that way, but are you living that way? And if you are, listen, such a perspective, no wonder has weakened your prayer life because it's useless in that, in that paradigm. What's the point of prayer if God is going to do what God is going to do whether you pray or not? Now, at one level, that's true, of course. If you don't pray about an issue, God will do what God is going to do. I'm not certainly denying the sovereignty of God, but God is calling us to work it with him and in his overall plan in such a way that while we pray, he is pleased to act on behalf of those prayers. So why would we not want to be involved in that privilege? It's just, it's, it's, it's remarkable how we have weakened our own prayer life through our errant perspectives. 
And here's the, here's the thing. If, if, if the church is weak in prayer, it's weak everywhere. Every ministry, every, every event, everything we do, all, the whole thing is weak. If we're weak in prayer, we're weak everywhere. And so we need, we need God's help in this. We are desperate for God, whether we feel it or not. Prayer is designed and ordained by God to both be a lifeline for us and the fuel for mission. Prayer is powerful, and the Bible's replete with evidence of this. Okay, just think about the Bible. People pray, and fire falls down from heaven. People pray, and the lame walk. People pray, and the dead come to life, and sinners are radically converted. And people on methamphetamine for 13 years get saved and changed. Say, you don't understand my son. He is so gone. He's not even the same kid anymore. He's been popping pills for so long and he's been shooting it up intravenously. God can still reach him and change him. Prayer is powerful. This is the clear testimony of scripture and know how we need to be awakened to the realities of it. Look at this story of the church in Acts. I mean, just read it. Every major move in Acts comes as a result of God's people gathering for prayer. In chapter one, they gather for, for prayer. And in chapter two, God's spirit is poured out upon them in flames of fire. In chapter three, Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. In chapter four, the number of believers expands or multiplies to 5,000. In chapter six, they devoted themselves to prayer. And a few verses later, we read that the disciples were greatly multiplying. In chapter seven, Stephen looks up to heaven and he prays. And in chapter eight, the church scatters under persecution and preaches its head off in all the surrounding towns and villages. And people come to know Christ. In chapter 12, Peter is in jail and the church is praying and an angel leads him outside. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas are praying and God brings an earthquake and the doors open and the Philippian jailer goes to kill himself. And Paul says, don't kill yourself, preaches the gospel, and the guy gets saved. This is the power of prayer. I love what David Platt said at Together for the Gospel this year about prayer. He said, God in his providence has not called us to watch history, but through prayer to shape history for the glory of his great name. Amen. Amen. I, I just love that statement. Do you feel that calling on your life? This is the power of our life together. God has designed to work in the world through willing intercessors. God has called us to pray, and as we pray, he responds and does unimaginable things, things that beyond what we could think or imagine. If we could just see it for what it is, we would start praying as a church. We would not take it so lightly. See, we have our own way. Hear me on this. We have our own way of twisting this text. You know what it is? it's refusing to be moved to action by it. And James has a word for us in that condition, you do not have because you do not ask. And I would say that to the degree that we take this text seriously, to that same degree, we will experience the power of God's kingdom. It will require work. It will require constant motivation. I mean, when 15 people show up for prayer, we got a lot of work to go. A lot of work. 
I miss prayer meetings out of laziness. I don't always show up because I'm too tired and I'm a pastor of the church. I'm just being honest with you. Okay, I have that same heart. God help us. Prayer matters. I can't, I can't just say, I, you know, I'm too tired to come. Like maybe once in a while, you know, that's an okay pass. But the general trajectory of our life needs to be, I can't afford to miss prayer. God help us. God help me. Help your pastors. We need help in this area. We need God's help. We must exhort one another. Pastors must be exhorting members. Members must be calling pastors to it. We must, I mean, encourage us. Exhort your pastors. Feel free. If you see that we're not leading well, or if we're not encouraging our church, or we're not modeling prayer well, call us out. I mean, we exist for God's glory, and that is so and that is so dependent upon prayer that if you don't see us leading in that way, by all means, please put your arm on, on, put your hand on our arm and say, Pastor, we're not praying. Help us. We're going to need help. We are weak and frail men to lead this church well. By prayer, but here's the thing. By prayer, listen to this, we commune with God and we receive the power of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. How do you receive? Ephesians, Ephesians 5 is clear. Ephesians is clear. Be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. Okay, that's a present tense command. That's something that's ongoing, it's repeatable, it's subsequent. Be filled with the Spirit. How are you filled with the Spirit? I don't think it's just by kind of not thinking about God, walking around, being spiritually lazy, undisciplined, and basically taking no responsibility for prayer. That is certainly no recipe for being filled with God. How is it that we are filled with God? By prayer, we commune with God. By prayer, we receive the power of the Spirit for life and ministry. What is the power of the kingdom? Let me ask this, the question this way. I would say the power of the kingdom is the experiential ministry of the Spirit of God. And without this power, without this experience, without his influence all, hear me, all of our spiritual gifts, all of our theological education, all of our strategic planning, all of our correct methodology is ultimately lifeless and powerless. And my desire for us as a church is that we develop an unquenchable hunger and a broken dependency that if we have everything else but do not have this anointing of holy fire upon our hearts and souls, then we will not influence men for Christ. Without this divine influence, without this subsequent repeatable filling of the Spirit of God, we will be like a train without an engine. We will be like a storm cloud without rain. We will be operating with no authority and power. And as a church, we must have the breath of God upon us in prayer and in preaching and in our missionary advancement. We must have his gracious blessing upon us, which means we must cultivate an atmosphere at this church given to prayer and fasting. And if we do, then God may be pleased to impress and convict and to lead our church for greater service in his kingdom. And I just want to say, we're not there yet. 
We're not there yet, but we can get there. And, and let's not be defeatist. Let's not say, you know, we're not there yet and we'll never get there. And that's an impossible standard. And there's no way can we, we can attain it. It's not true. That's a lie from Satan. Of course we can get there. There have been movements of God. There have been people in churches that made a real difference in this world. It's because they had a conviction that prayer mattered and they came together and they owned that conviction and they exhorted one another to it and they started to pray and they humbled themselves and they got on their face before God and God came and moved and shook the house. But see, the thing is, we have not because we ask not. The, the, we, the, it's, the onus is on us. God is willing. The question is not a willingness of God issue. The question is with us. We need a church filled with men and women that have an ability to enter a place. And under the power and influence of the Spirit of God to see and to understand the situation of that dark place and apply the Word of God to it with power so that in a short time, a significant move of God happens in that place. I'm talking about evangelistic success. I'm talking about walking into a new area. I'm talking about an unchartered, largely unreached area, whether of the world or in our own city, where the gospel has not significantly permeated and to go into that place and to pray and to believe by God, to assess that situation, speak the word of God to it, and through the power and ministry and help and assistance of the Holy Spirit, a church gets started. And that's the kind of ministry that we see all through the New Testament. We see that. With significant work of God brought to bear on people. My question, dear church, is this. Have we ever known that influence here? My question is, have we tasted this in prayer, in private prayer, and in worship, and in the preaching of this church, and in personal ministry, and mission endeavors? Paul says, we came to you not in cleverness of speech, but in the demonstration of spirit and in power. And then he tells the Thessalonians that when my word came to you, it did not come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. So here's the question. How do we secure such influence and power? Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that it's sovereignly bestowed. It is sovereignly given by divine prerogative. Um, we're told that the Spirit blows where he wishes. Paul did not ask to be converted. Paul did not ask to be an apostle. It was a sovereign outpouring of the Spirit upon him. He blows where he wishes. And in that sense, we have very little to do with it. But there's something equally true. And it's this. It ought to be responsibly sought by sacrificial prayer. This kind of power and influence of God ought to be responsibly sought by sacrificial prayer. There is too little praying today. Now I'm glad to see a resurgence, I praise God for it, of solid reformed theology. I, I'm glad to see a resurgence of interest in, in healthy churches, the marks of a healthy church. I'm glad to see, see a resurgence of interest in expositional preaching and biblically ordered churches. I'm thankful for all that. But I fear that intellectual comprehension of correct truth 
dynamic giftedness, and even the ability to be accessible and deeply contextualized to our generation will never replace the Holy Spirit's power in the life of a man on his knees. It just won't do it. We can tickle the ear. We can speak to the mind. We can move the heart for a moment. But if we want to make a lasting impact on men, we have got to have God's power. If we do not know the difference between the power of the Spirit of God and our mere eloquence and gift, then we need to go back to the place of prayer and pray for divine fire upon our souls. We are not looking to establish at Heritage Baptist Church a trendy, cool form of Christianity that grows the church like wildfire. We are looking for a power and a demonstration of God's spirit upon his people in this place that is real and lasting and significant. And if God chooses to grow his church like wildfire through that, then praise God. But if we grow, a, if we grow five miles wide and we're an inch deep and unspiritual, that is terrible. God will bring his fire of judgment upon all that we do and he will consume. And on the end of the, at the end of the day, the things that are gold and silver will be tested by fire. And I do not want the work of Heritage Baptist Church to be burned up. I want, there to be, I want this place to be a place filled after the fire comes and consumes, filled with gold that lasts. And that's going to come. Listen, that's, what, I'm, what I'm preaching today is how this is going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. We're looking for a demonstration of God's spirit upon the people in this place. Education and gift and knowledge and personality will grow a church, but only the kiss of God's spirit will create things that will stand the test of time. Hear me. Listen, we labor by faith and obedience to the revealed will of God. No matter how we feel, we must continue to do that. But that is not enough. If we are going to penetrate darkness, if we are going to see doors open on Fifth Street, and in our gospel communities, then we have got to have God's power. You cannot walk into a dark place of this world or even in this city and expect to make any difference without the influence and the help and the authority of the Holy Spirit. There is no way. We, and if we do not have that, then we must go to the closet and pray for it and stay there until God gives it to us. Amen. We wrestle with God. God give it to us. So let me close this way with a list of things that I want us to begin praying for as a church. If you have a pencil and a paper, jot these down. Because I, I seriously, I sincerely want you to begin praying this way with me and with our pastors. Okay? These are things I pray regularly in my life and things that I, I think that we need to start praying regularly for as a church. Number one, pray for the gift of a deep and true repentance. I'm talking about repentance as a gift that we see our sin for what it is and God gives us real sorrow for that and we turn from that. Number two, pray for a heightened sensitivity of conscience. See, because we don't want to sin and have to repent of that, we want to avoid sin. We want our conscience to be alarming us and going off and saying, no, 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 no. We're not going to walk in there and do this. A heightened sensitivity of conscience. Number three, pray for greater degrees of holiness. That God would give us, that, that the, the, the holiness of our church would increase. That we would not be as worldly or secular or as lazy or as whatever. That God would just be working in us a godliness, a real holiness of life and character together. 
Number four, pray for a broken heart over the spiritual condition of sinners, especially in our city. A broken heart. The heart of Paul in Romans 9 that he says, I am weeping. My heart is broken. I could almost have wished myself accursed for my kinsmen that they may come to know Christ. Number five, plead for God's mercy upon sinners. His mercy upon sinners. Plead for that. Number six, plead for God's glory on the earth. This is the true end of prayer. We want to see his glory. Revelation 8 says that the smoke of incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God. Our labor for Christ is not in vain. Our prayers and sacrifice are sweet before him. So plead for God's glory on the earth that our light, we'd be living sacrifices, making his glory known. Seven, plead for the Holy Spirit to work through your pastors. That's a very specific prayer. I certainly covet that so deeply as a pastor. But because we need the Holy Spirit to lead this church well and wisely, we need his power to be holy men of God on our own faces. If your pastor's not praying, if he's not holy, if he's not with God, if he's not communing with him, he's going to be an ill, effective pastor. How can we pastor? How can we preach? How, we can't stand behind this pulpit and do anything meaningful or, or, or share or minister to people anything of real substance or power without his kiss upon us. And we're not going to get that unless we are with him. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work through your pastor's Eight, pray for God's presence. We want to know him. We want to feel his closeness and his nearness to us. And we want God to be near. That when we come in this place on a regular basis, we sense his power and his presence and his nearness, that he's with us, that he loves us, that he's close to us. And finally, plead for God to send personal and corporate renewal to our church. See, I've said this before, we cannot create revival, but we can certainly hinder it. So let's do all that we can not to forfeit a visitation from God, a new visitation from God. Pray and may God be pleased to come. And I close with these words of Hosea. I think they're applicable in principle to us. Here's what, here's what we read. Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Hear this. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. That's my prayer for us as a church. May God do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Do what only you can do now and press it deeply into us so that we are different as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.